0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm on Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Martha McGill, British Academy Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Warwick in the UK, to talk about her new book, The Supernatural in Early Modern Scotland, out uh, 2020 with Manchester University Press. Hi Martha, how are you? I'm very well, Yana, thank you for asking me to be here. I'm so glad you decided to join me. So where are you today?
1: I am in Milton Keynes, a short commute from Warwick, and it is very wild and wet outside, so I'm just trying to stay huddled in a corner right now. Yeah,
0: I understand. Um, uh, We're having a little cross-the-channel conversation today with similar, just miserable Northern European weather, but God love it. Here we are. all right, so Martha, your own work deals with the supernatural, which is what I'd like to start with today, just this as an idea. What is the supernatural in, in this early modern context? What does that mean?
1: Well, it's a very big topic. <laughs> in theory, the supernatural is anything that goes beyond the ordinary operations of nature. So that would include God at the very top of the supernatural hierarchy, and um, Angels, the devil are rung down. And then below that, you get into all kinds of other things which are much more theologically questionable. Things like ghosts, fairies, goblins of various kinds, werewolves, whatever you can think about really um, that stems from folkloric tradition. All of the sort of creepy creatures in that bracket would be accepted as real by some sectors of early modern society Um, other parts of early modern society might reject them altogether and say that no that's not part of the christian framework i'm looking here at christian culture specifically so essentially what is the supernatural would depend on who precisely you asked different people would have different answers for you Um, but there's a lot of things it could be and it almost certainly includes god the devil and the other things that get mentioned in the bible by pretty much anyone's definition
0: right yeah i was thinking particularly kind of about the relationship with like between the religion and the supernatural like these boundaries um there's an accept so like acceptable supernatural right
1: Yes, absolutely. So your educated theologians and so forth are going to have a very different idea about what the supernatural world looks like compared to your average you know, farmer who is not necessarily literate, hasn't got that theological training. You've got an accepted supernatural world that is the world as set out in the Bible. It does include, as we've mentioned, God, the devil, angels. It probably includes witches. For most of the early modern period, theologians would say that, yeah, witches are there in the Bible. Um, although by the 18th century, you do start getting elements of educated society rejecting mm. that idea. Um, ghosts, much shakier ground there. They possibly appear in the Bible. It's a bit questionable. <laughs> and things like fairies, another step down on the ladder, most educated theologians would reject those altogether. So, yeah, the the supernatural religion, it's very closely entangled. We need to understand religion, theology, to understand what people thought about the supernatural world in the early modern period. But again, you always have to be careful about um, understanding whose perspective you're looking at, because different sectors of society would have very different ideas. Yeah. And
0: then, you know, kind of, so I'm seeing like religion, supernatural, and then there's like licit and illicit beliefs as well, it seems. Things that would have been accepted by your your farmer, but perhaps not your theologian. And all of these kind of can fall under the umbrella of the supernatural.
1: Yes, Uh, absolutely. So for your farmer, seeing a strange apparition, Perhaps the most natural explanation would be a fairy of some kind. Fairies are very, very popular in Scottish folklore. Um, The book The Supernatural in early modern Scotland, as the title implies, (laughs) focuses on Scotland. So fairies might be yeah, a sort of natural instinct. Um, If that farmer later mentioned to his minister that he'd seen this strange apparition and he thought it was a fairy that minister might then be saying oh wow well, i think that might actually have been the devil who was disguising himself to trick you you know you've right. got these different frameworks in which people would place and interpret this stuff
0: yeah and these frameworks i want to talk about how um what kind of problems this might in, uh, cause or stumbling blocks or extra considerations, let's go with that, for an historian of the early modern world? Like, how might we have trouble understanding the the supernatural?
1: Well, it's weird, right? <laughs> I mean, I often think this with regard to looking at the Scottish witch trials. Um, Scotland had relatively severe witch hunting, probably executed perhaps more than 10 times as many people per head of the population than England, for example. And the kinds of things people were getting executed for is stuff that it's very, very hard to come to terms with as a modern audience. Um, Stuff about supposedly using magic to harm neighbors, potentially cavorting with the devil, having secret nighttime meetings with him, feasting on the corpses of dead babies. The stuff that can strike us as very fantastical, and that is stuff that educated people very much were believing, stuff that was making its way through the judicial system, which was full of very highly trained lawyers and so forth. So it can be difficult to know where to begin with understanding this stuff, Um, and it can be difficult um, to escape the impulse to say, oh, actually, it was about something else. You know, it wasn't really about belief in the supernatural because that's just a bit too weird. It was about broader social things. You know, the witch hunts were about misogyny. They were about punishing women. They were about politics. They were about um, King James trying to assert a new order on Scotland. Um, Or they were about crop failures. Or they were about periods of bad weather causing social tension that made people lash out against each other. And to some extent, all of that is true and all of that is helpful. To some extent, um, all of those things were factors. But it's really dangerous to distance ourselves too far from thinking about the actual supernatural beliefs at the core of all this. Because we're never going to be able to understand properly unless we do accept that people had this worldview built around the Christian scripture and folkloric tradition allowed that the devil was a very real actor on earth. So I think um, studying the supernatural, yes, it poses challenges because there's always this tendency to try and say, oh, well, there's other things going on, which there were. <laughs> but sure. in the end, you do always have to come back to saying, and this stuff was real for people as well. Um, you know, you have to try and connect with people on that level.
0: Sure. The supernatural is real. The devil and God are like God's God's not coming to earth anymore, but the devil is and he's walking around mm-hmm. and, you know, like yeah, magic is happening is really important. I get that. Cool. OK. Um, so how did you become interested in this topic, the supernatural writ large, particularly in Scotland?
1: My original work was on ghosts. Um, so I published a book in 2018, Ghosts in Enlightenment Scotland. And I always wish I had the story about the ghost that I met <laughs> who inspired me to do this work. But sadly, I don't. It was um, in an archive. I came across an old letter containing some ghost stories sent by a minister in the early 18th century. And I was curious because I didn't think ministers were supposed to be talking about that sort of thing by the early 18th century. Um Ghosts, again, pretty shaky theological ground for ghosts specifically. Um, So that was my sort of entry point. I wanted to look at why people were telling these stories and circulating them and taking them seriously. And that took me on a sort of tour, which became a PhD through Scottish ghost beliefs. I mean, I was interested, I said we have to... Look at these beliefs in their own right, and I do believe that. But I was also interested in all of the other things they can tell us about society, um, how different sort of patterns in intellectual culture or different social trends impact the kinds of stories that people were telling. So the minister who was writing this ghost story in 1707 was doing so because he was part of a cluster of educated men who were frightened that the New philosophical changes of the later 17th century, the so-called scientific revolution, were going to turn everyone into atheists. For these ministers, telling stories of ghosts was a way to safeguard against that threat of atheism. You know, if people believe that there are apparitions walking amongst us, then they won't turn against God. They won't turn their backs on Christianity. So there was a period when intellectual figures sort of reclaimed stories of ghosts and other strange phenomena to try and defend the Christian scriptures. So we can sort of face patterns like that in terms of what's going on in intellectual culture. Um, You know, later in the Enlightenment, you've got other figures start to say, oh, no, this stuff is all figments of the imagination or the products of a disordered stomach or something. It's nasty fumes from from your incomplete digestion, causing you to see things. Um, there's just this fascinating evolution in how this stuff is understood later on. Then you get gothic and romantic literature, which takes it all over again and transforms it and introduces us to haunted castles and ruins and a very sort of romantic, ghostly aesthetic. Um, but yes, I'm interested in this thing about how stories evolve, when they evolve and why they evolve. And since the PhD in the first book, I've broadened out to look at other kinds of supernatural entity as well as ghosts.
0: Cool. All right. Um, so this is an edited volume. So it includes 13 mm-hmm. articles, uh, several, yeah, 13, including the introduction that you and your co-editor selected. Um, how did you decide to do this collection? At what point did you think a collection was the right way to go?
1: Yeah, so this was co-edited with Professor Julian Gooder of the University of Edinburgh, um, my former PhD supervisor, It came about when we were both working in Edinburgh and stemmed out of a workshop that I organised that aimed to bring scholars together to talk about a range of different kinds of supernatural belief in Scotland. Part of the motivation was just that so much of the work on the supernatural in Scotland has been about the witch trials. And that's great, that's fantastic. Much of it is Julian's work. and it is wonderful work and it has really helped us to understand lots of different things about Scottish society and culture. But there's been so much less done than all of these other kinds of belief. You know, In the book, we look at things like um, angels, astrology, spirit guides, um, political prophecies, um, things about second sight, Scottish enlightenment approaches to the supernatural poetry, um, just all sorts of different entry points into how people approached and thought about the supernatural. So I suppose the point of it being a collection was to bring together a range of scholars who could offer insights into all of these pretty different little subsections of the field, with the goal ultimately of bringing something a bit more varied um casting a slightly sort of broader net and moving the study of the supernatural beyond just the witch trials
0: yeah very successful at that right and thinking about kind of broadening the idea of what the supernatural looks like mm-hmm. um and probably lovely fun rewarding to work with your advisor your phd advisor oh, yes,
1: absolutely um although julian's no, a delight to work with and much more experience in publishing edited collections than I did, he was able to sort of tell me when we were getting things wrong and keep me in line and so forth, which was massive. Which was
0: but It's wonderful. It really is having a good relationship with your your PhD supervisor is a it's a gift and indeed. So your work, angels in early modern Scotland. Uh, tell us what you do in this chapter.
1: So that chapter looks. At how early modern conceptions of angels differed from modern conceptions, the main argument is that early modern angels are a pretty scary bunch. <laughs> We've got this modern idea of angels as being quite mm-hmm. soft, kind, benevolent figures. You've got the guardian angel archetype. You know, angels are people who watch over you, guide you, protect you. And it's not that that idea wasn't there in the early modern period, but most of the depictions you see of angels are much more frightening. Angels are um, God's purveyors of justice. They come with great big flaming swords and strike down the ungodly or the unworthy. Um, They are there to keep you in step. They will sort of summon up terrible storms by God's power, uh, bring punishments raining down on the land and so forth. So, yes, I was interested in... um, where we see these kinds of depictions of different types of angels and when perceptions shift. Um, So broadly for most of the early modern period in Scotland, depictions of angels fall into either the sort of sober ministering figure who is stern, austere, or again, the punitive scary angel. It's really only in the 18th century when the church starts to lose its grip on depictions of the supernatural. Everything gets slightly more outsourced um, to literary um, productions, to poetry, to romantic works. That's when angels really start softening up. There's much more cultural focus on guardian angels. The visual depictions of them get much more soft. Um, And then the Victorian era that's when they get really chocolate boxy but that's beyond the scope of the chapter um so yeah essentially it's looking at um, how these changes happen and what that tells us about people's relationship with religion in the period
0: what does it tell us about people's relationship to religion in the period
1: well okay that it's pretty scary <laughs> <laughs> that you're yeah. looking at a god who does want the best for you but is more sort of stick than carrot quite a lot of the time, you know, a God who's raining down all of these punishments. Um, there's a lot of work. In another chapter in the book is one I co-authored with Dr. Alastair Rafe, which looks at God's providence, God's sort of judgments on the land, the way in which God communicates or intervenes in what happens And an awful lot there is about God protecting people but again there's also plenty of punitive stuff. (laughs) Um, Your early modern God is a pretty scary figure and again it's as we get into the 18th century that those depictions start to soften, the very rigid Calvinism of the sort of first century and a half of the Scottish Reformation eases off somewhat (laughs) at least within the mainstream of the Kirk and the a more benevolent God emerges essentially. Um, but yes, for the earlier part of the period, you know, you really have to be on your best behavior. <laughs> yeah. I felt this you, this article, your, your
0: your piece did such a good job of showing one of the like how ideas can evolve and really how the nature of our understanding of the, you know, in, in the Christian world, what God does can be so different. You know, I was, was, I feel it's like it really encapsulates a lot of what you're trying to do. It's a very good piece. Um, something else I really enjoyed was the invention of Highland Second Sight by uh, Donald Ullum Stewart. How'd Donald I do? Donald William
1: Stewart, yes.
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, the Scottish spelling, I think, you know, well, you know, right. For an American, it's a bit uh,
1: rougher but nonetheless, there we go. Uh, yes, we are very grateful to him for bringing some expertise in Gallic sources to the collection. Yeah, it,
0: was, it was great. And I'm like, oh, I think I see where we're going here. Um, and it, really it's a lot of work with the Gallic sources. Um, mm-hmm. And he's rather an old Eminence kind of Scottish scholar, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. He's done a lot of fantastic work in this field already and in covering the, and exploring the writings of people who took an interest in this kind of thing in the early modern period, like Martin Martin, who produced some very valuable work for historians on Second Sight in the Highlands. Um, But yes, in his chapter, um, John William Stewart looks in more detail at where Second Sight came from, um, where the idea emerged from and how that then gets sort of taken up and um, broadcast to a larger audience by Martin and other people. Um, So it's a really helpful um, voyage into how beliefs which operate usually at an oral level among, in this case, typically Gaelic-speaking communities, would be sort of taken up and um, interpreted and then relayed by educated English-speaking audiences, um, sorry, by educated English-speaking individuals to wider, often European audiences.
0: Right. So that there's kind of, I'm getting like a co-opting then
1: almost of the story. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Martin Martin was himself a Highlander. I mention him again because he is one of the most important figures in describing and um, bringing a broader audience to the notion of second sight. But these figures who are coming from an educated background are always going to be standing somewhat separately from the Mm -hmm. society that they're portraying, um, which you can typically tell by how the stories are framed. You know, Martin was not unsympathetic um, to the second-sighted seers he was writing about. He explained they are sort of Good people, essentially. Um, but there was always a sense of he was standing apart himself as the commentator, um, not as sort of someone very closely embroiled in the world of being a seer himself. So, yeah, I think it's impossible to get away from some level of co opting when it comes to probably any kind of written down record of folkloric belief from the early one period. Um, Hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think this shows just another level of kind of the delicacy of working with this kind of material in this area and then the fundamental work that historians, we kind of are constantly trying to put together a world that's long gone. Um,
1: yes, absolutely. And I mean, looking at the supernatural, there's always that challenge around source material. Um, again, you are left with the sources that educated people have written down an awful lot of the source material for supernatural or specifically folkloric beliefs comes from the witch trials, um, which was um, an area in which, again, educated people considered it worthwhile to write down normal people's ideas about the supernatural world. But then, of course, it's all got this particular framing. Um, You've got beliefs about fairies, for example, that are elicited during interrogations, you've got your interrogators reframing this stuff as being actually a story about the devil, not a story about fairies, for example. So you've always got these sort of barriers um, when it comes to trying to get at what normal people um, thought about the supernatural world. Um. So I was
0: thinking about these two together kind of, and the rest of the volume as well. And um, I really liked fallen spirits and divine grace um, with Michelle Brock and um, which, you know, kind of explores the tension a person might feel trying to constantly be in touch with God and the devil. And I just came away with this feeling that the an early modern Scott would just feel that they were living in the midst of a world just packed full of forces beyond their control. Um, god the devil and just all manner of powers out there is that a fair uh, like a fair whatever
1: like view yeah I mean for some of them certainly I'm sure there are some people who focus on getting the harvest in and don't worry about it too much you know? Um they'll always be the people who keep on growing the potatoes and thank goodness you know? but yeah. certainly um, I mean something that always strikes me going back to this source material is just the hours and hours and hours and hours of (laughs) of labour and of um, effort and blood sweat tears, all the rest, that people would pour into producing these theological texts and then Editing them, debating them, arguing over specific interpretations of particular lines of scripture or whatever it might be, um, considering all of these um, different sort of possibilities about what the supernatural world might encompass, often at great length and with incredible erudition on display, and um, you know, just people cared so much. <laughs> it, it, a lot of people, it really, really, really was about um, ensuring that humanity had the best possible chance of reaching salvation, um, that they personally had the best possible chance of saving their soul. You know, Understanding God's world, God's creation is an act of worship, is an act of trying to be the best possible person you can be. And for so many people, that just was the most <laughs> important thing. So yeah, you've got your, your sort of educated people who are ready to pour over this in so much painstaking detail. And then you've got all of your people who are getting all of this stuff hammered into them, but very regular sermons. Um, you know, the kirk was especially after the Reformation in 1560 in Scotland, the new Kirk is Pretty keen to enforce its new conception of precisely what the supernatural world looks like and how humans ought to interact with it. So you've got a Kirk at the center of your community that is talking quite a lot about how you should be thinking about this stuff, how you should be you're know, incorporating it into your daily life, your your prayers, your thoughts, your speculations, your Reflections on God and what He does for you, and then it's there sort of visually as well. My chapter on angels looks at how angels appear on gravestones, paintings on walls, um, walls of churches, um, sort of you know, carving images and so forth. They weren't necessarily supposed to after the Reformation because Protestant culture has a sort of uneasy relationship with graven images <laughs> and anything which could be construed as an idol. But a lot of this stuff survives from the pre-Reformation period and more of it does get created as well. Um, I spent a while when I was working on that chapter just suddenly finding angels everywhere, <laughs> where, you know. I'd I'd look at a map or a sort of plan for a different project and there'd be little angels Um you know curling around it I was looking at some students notebooks and he doodled angels in the margins <laughs> there's that sense of them again being sort of part of the visual landscape part of the surroundings this um you know plethora of supernatural beings and there's um you know it's your immortal soul
0: but if if there's a belief, if you, I mean, if these are creatures that are walking among us, angels are punishing us, they are witches, then it's also the survival of your body, right? It's about, you know, farming, bringing in the potatoes or all of the wheat. That's very little feels more out of control than the weather, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it's very easy to take that and see the supernatural everywhere
1: and worry about it. Yes, absolutely. The supernatural is a means of trying to comprehend what, what's going on in the world. I mean, we see this with the, the chapter on providence, um, attempting mm-hmm. to um, identify acts of God's providences. is all about trying to discern God's plan for the universe, why certain things happen or why certain things don't happen. So all of your figures who are thinking or writing about providence are doing that are trying to make sense of things. Jane Ritter Patrick's chapter on astrology as well. Um, Astrology is another tool by which people would try and make sense of the patterns of the world around them. You you can look to astrology to judge what the weather's going to do, um, when you should be planting your harvest, things like that. Um, You could potentially ask slightly more um, theologically questionable queries as well about. you know, which battles are going to happen, when the monarch's going to die, all of this kind of thing. But um, the weather, at least, was seen by most people as being an acceptable field of inquiry for those who practiced looking at the stars. <laughs> and, you know, in both cases, with the Providence, with the astrology, there's that underlying belief that everything means something. You know, there's some kind of plan that's been written down at the beginning of time. Uh, by the deity, everything is, then, so, um, everything is then playing out according to that plan. So, you know, if you look at this stuff enough, if you analyse it, if you try and sort of fathom all of the secrets, uh, you will gain this new kind of power to understand your environment and, by extension, to look after yourself and your family um, to make sure the crops don't fail or whatever it might be. all oh, right. Great. Right. Yeah, thanks.
0: I'm, I'm getting this picture. Thanks for talking to me about it. So I have uh, one last real question, which is, uh, what are you doing with your own research right now?
1: So my research right now, um, generously funded by the British Academy, <laughs> looks at ideas about demons and angels and the ways in which they might interact with human beings I'm interested specifically in how they might work inside people. And I'm trying to get away here from the more sort of commonly recognised concept of demonic possession, the idea that a demon would come in and take control and make people behave in all kinds of strange ways and levitate and speak in tongues. We've got a lot of accounts of this from the early modern period and there's been a lot of great historical work done on it. But I want to look at the less dramatic cases of what we might call possession, the ways in which angels and demons might be continuously inserting thoughts into people's heads, subtly manipulating their emotions to make them behave in particular ways, according to early modern belief systems. I mean, this idea that you might constantly have demons, angels at work within your body, within your brain... It's something that we see in lots of different sort of forums. It's something that we see in literature, um, in natural philosophy, in theology, in folklore. Um, So I'm interested in tracing all of these different contexts in which we get ideas about spirits working within people um, and try and build up through that a better understanding of what identity was in the earlier modern period. You know, to what extent were you an individual with your own free will and your own ability to make decisions? Or to what extent are you just another part of this great fabric of creation that includes all of these spirits that push you and manipulate you in different ways? So yes, that's the current project.
0: Great. <laughs> right. excellent, sounds very good. Um, <laughs> Hey, thanks so much
1: for taking some time to talk to me today. It was a really lovely conversation. Not at all. Um, There's one other thing I'll mention in terms of my recent work um, is a card game that I produced with a group of students at Warwick which looks at the Scottish witch hunts. It's called Witch Hunt 1649. And the aim of that was to um, try and look in a, sort of empathetic and non-sensationalised way at the sort of culture surrounding the witch hunts um, and try and sort of have a different window, a different method of exploring um, what it was like to be an early mum's in the period of the witch hunts. Um, So yeah, it's called Witch Hunt 1649. It's available to be downloaded for free. We do also sell printed copies uh, with all proceeds going to a Coventry-based charity that helps victims of sexual violence. Um, so if anybody's interested, <laughs> you know, it's another way to uh, a sort of different kind of way of looking at early modern culture and belief in the supernatural.
0: That's so cool. How do I access that?
1: How do our listeners access that? Um, so it's on my personal website, um, marthamcgill.co.uk forward slash witch hunt 1649. Um, I think if you just Google witch hunt 1649 as well, it should come up. Um, right.
0: Yeah, and I can put a link to that in the, uh, on the website, on the podcast website. So that should be easy to get to. I'm gonna go check it out. That's really fun. I have a weekend away coming up with some friends. We'll play Witch Hunt.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> great. <Very> <laughs> all, welcome feedback on it. Um, it's a difficult and delicate thing trying to make a game about serious topics like this. And there's all kinds of longer conversations that could be had about that. I won't get into that right now. But yeah, always interested in other people's thoughts on you know, to what extent um, achieve that in an appropriate way, whether we did or not, etc.
0: Um, anything you can do to make students see that there are multiple ways of seeing a thing, right, is, is a good way. It's a good thing. Um, especially something as easily denounceable as a witch hunt, which is truly yeah. terrible. Okay, great. But how do we get there? You know, what, what, mm-hmm. what, what has happened? That's our, our job as historians is to help understand how we
1: get there. Um, Yeah, that was part of the goal, to make a tool that could be used for teaching that encourages people to try and immerse themselves in the mindset of, again, a person from a normal, early modern community. And we also wanted to reach people who are not necessarily going to read a big academic textbook on the subject, but might be a bit more interested in playing a game and try and have a game that's been informed by academic research, a lot of the games out there about witch-hunting Um, have not been (laughs) quite so much, you know, and though they have real witches um, and sort of sensationalised in that respect. So we wanted to produce something that was a bit more academically informed. Um, And there's further sort of context on the website, further discussion around the ways in which it is historically accurate or the things where we had to compromise for the sake of gameplay or whatever. Um, (laughs)
0: All right, I'm so happy to uh, I'm so happy to link to that. I'm so happy to know about it, and I'm guessing our audience will be people who are very interested in knowing about this from an uh, historical perspective. All right, Martha, thank you very much for meeting with me, and uh, I wish you a very good day. Thank you, Yana. You too.